Life in all its myriad forms cover the jewel of the solar system, Earth. The planet we call home boasts an amazing array of flora and fauna, with the dominant species, us, perched atop the global food chain. But is that perch as secure as we believe it to be? And as we look down, do we truly see all that exists in the shadow of the pedestal of our own creation? Or does hubris blind us to that which we cannot easily see? There are those who say winged creatures glide through moonlit skies or glare from the darkness with crimson eyes. Are the plaster cast footprints filling display cases in museums around the globe proof of the existence of the creature indigenous people of North America named Sasquatch in bygone days? Or are they all part of an elaborate hoax perpetrated against an all-too-often gullible society? And are we justified in embracing the evidence of eyewitness accounts and other evidence, or equally justified in denying that any new thing could be discovered under the burning light of day or the cool rays of a full moon? Are cryptids such as Mothman and Bigfoot actual living creatures, or do they only haunt the fertile forests and fields that border the pathways leading through the shadows of legend? Hello, this is Charles Romans, your host for Shadows of Legend. And today we're speaking with Israel Bynum from Oregon. He's going to share some of his experience with, with the strange and the paranormal. How are you today? I'm doing okay. Well, that's good to hear. So, as always, let's uh, just begin from the beginning. <clears throat> when was your first experience with what would qualify as the strange or the paranormal? When I was an infant, actually. Okay. Camping in the... Well, it's quite popular and known, the Sweats River Gorge. Okay. And uh, where exactly and is that? I'm right in the Central Oregon coast. Okay. It's a, it's a big river for the length of it. And up in the gorge area, it's very dense forest with steep hills. And my first experience was as, a, I guess, a toddler. And up there camping with my parents. And they had rocks play horizontally over the top of their camp. I see. And then the river in front so did they elaborate on that? Um, yeah, trees were being broken and rocks were being thrown over the top of their camp. And the rocks were like, you know, the size of picnic tables. That's 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 pretty startling. Yeah. They, packed, they didn't bother packing up camp. They packed up as kids and they hightailed out of there. Well, that was probably a good thing to do. Because with the way you described it, it wasn't anything naturally occurring. It wasn't like a landslide or anything like that. There was something out there doing that. Yeah, going right over the top of the camp on a flat uh, plain where a creek meets the river. Yes. But my first actual experience, I remember, it starts off with my grandpa saying, what in the woods scares a bear? And I said, I don't know, Grandpa, you tell me. He said, if you go above that tree line, you're planned out. And as a little kid, I waited till I was about six years old before I ventured up that high on the mountain. Okay. And I got chased by a bear coming up in that hillside. And what... Whatever it was, stopped that bear, and that bear yelped like a dog being beaten and was thrown. And all I saw was the large hairy man. About and he was beating that and he was beating that bear. Yeah, that that's startling in and of itself. What uh, you say a large hairy man, what what kind of dimensions do you think? I mean, how tall was it, broad, things of that nature? He was as tall as the bottom of the, the bottom branches of the trees, so at least twelve feet tall at that time. Mm -hmm. And he grabbed that bear and he thrown it, and he proceeded to just beat it, saving my life. I think I'm I'm positive of it. 
Well, yes, I mean, you would chase me by a bear. Now, uh, typically, a bear can run about 40 miles an hour. So a human human is not going to outrun a bear. It's just not going to happen. No, and this thing interceded. Well, it's like you had your own sort of guardian cryptid. Yeah, but that was my first actual memory of ever having experience with one. Yes. But living, you know, on the West Coast and spending as much time in the woods as I have, um, I eventually, you know, had several different encounters. I see. And I eventually moved into the forest for a long period of time, That's living by myself deep in the woods. Yeah. And an experience there started out with me thinking that it was coyotes or bears taking, you know, my my sugar and my coffee and my chocolate. Yes. So I I went through a series of elaborate, you know, designs of things to keep it from being taken. All the way to both in a lockbox to a tree. Having the tree ripped apart and the lockbox ripped off of it. Yeah. That's when stuff got interesting. Well, that that's something that possibly a bear could do, but not, a canine wouldn't be able to do that. I mean, to your typical, like a wolf, coyote, something like that. Yeah, but it was a nine-inch tree. Yeah, see, that's a bit much even for a bear to knock over. And both of them the tree. Yeah, that's when it got interesting, and that's when I discovered that they had a liking for chocolate-covered espresso and sugar. Well, it does have an appeal, so. Yeah. Yeah, I became, uh, actually became friends with them. If, if you don't care to describe how that happened. Um, it was a period of time living deep in the woods and, you know, with my food supplies and all that. Mm-hmm. It became to where my interaction with them became to where we were on a daily interaction. Now, was this, uh, was it like you, you left stuff for them or you, did you, you see know, them? No, we, we were meeting daily and interacting, working together. So now, how how did that go about? Describe that to us, if you don't mind. I was probably 15 miles from the nearest highway. Yes. Deep in the, deep up in the wilderness zone, you know, where you can't take any motorized vehicles or any of that stuff. Right. You'd have to hike into it. Yeah. And, yeah, I became friends with them. And you say them, so that, that implies there's more than one, of course. There was many of them. There was an entire family of them up in my belly. Or I should say I was in their belly. Probably, because uh, ideally they were there first if you encountered them when you went there. Yeah. So, and you say yeah. a whole family of them. How was that family made up? Start off with the matriarchs being, I believe they were great-grandparents. I see. And they were well into their elderly age, even for human standards, and ranging down to, you know, newborns. Now. Possibly the, the fact that you were that far back into the woods was the only reason that you were able to to even see them, much less interact with them. Well, I've had a lot of experience with, you know, animals and, you know, helping birth like cows and stuff like that. Yes. And one of my experiences was helping a brief birth with one of them. Okay. Yeah, there was a mother in distress and I could hear her crying and calling out in, you know, in the night and... I was found and led to them, you know, taken to them to help because they'd seen me help with an elk in the past. And I don't know what else they'd seen me do, but I helped with a breach birth. I'm assuming there was a certain degree of gratitude for that, for that assistance. Extreme. So. Extreme gratitude. Now, obviously, that's one way that you helped them. And, uh, of course, the food supplies and stuff like that was another way. What, what are some of the ways that they helped you? They would help me um, by, we built a hot tub together, even. 
Okay. If you can believe that. If you don't mind, describe that a little bit. I mean, uh, most people we don't, don't have a concept of actually living. We worked together digging the. We worked together digging the pit. Okay. And then lined it with, lined it with the clay. Okay. And I brought I brought in the copper coil for the fire pit. Yes. And we ran, you know, together, working together, we ran a water line up a, a canyon, up a creek, and with the fire pit, the coil heated the hot water, or heated the water, making a hot water for a hot tub, basically, in the woods. Mm-hmm. And they really appreciated that. Oh, I don't doubt it. I believe they're still using it. It's a possibility. And now you, you say that you believe they're still using it. I'm assuming that you no longer live up there now? No, I live uh, north there. I moved back to civilization. I see. And uh, obviously, since you uh, built uh, a hot tub, it's not like you were just living in a tent up there. Did you have some sort of cabin or something like that built? Or We had a cabin, um, well, a cabin built, and together we dug and built a cave cabin. Okay. Into the side of the hill. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, how long did you live up there? Several years, actually. So now... With being up there several years and having that, what you say, daily interaction, then I'm sure you were able to observe a lot of traits and everything else. So how does, yeah. what, how does what you know compare to what a lot of other people report? The smell? That depends on their lifestyle. I can tell you that much. Okay. Most of them do not have a smell because they prefer, they prefer to bathe and um, stay clean. Mm-hmm. So they're not, they're not able to be tracked. Right. Well, I would think that it, uh, if a smell was constant, that that it would be easy to track them. There's been a lot of different yeah. other people say that um, that it's almost like the smell is an intentional thing to ward off uh, intruders and things of that and nature. Exactly. They do it intentionally, and they come up with some really funny concoctions to make some horrid smells. Especially if um, you get around like the hot springs areas. Yes. You know, where the natural hot springs are in the here in the Cascade area of mm-hmm. Oregon. Yes. Yeah, they like to they like to take sulfur and mix that with the mud and spread that over themselves. I can see where that would would be a good pungent smell. Oh yeah. And that drives away pretty much everything. Well I would think so, yes. So what are some of the other things that you picked up uh, about them? How do these other things compare to what other people report? They prefer being uh, eating vegetable, you know, vegetables over proteins. Okay. You know, they they'll eat meats on occasion if they have to, but they prefer berries and fruits, and especially if they can find an old homestead area, you know, up in the mountains around here where they can find the old like tomato plants and the like garlics and onions and um, apples and stuff still growing that were planted back in the eighteen hundreds or whatever. Yes. They love. To congregate around those areas. Well, I mean, I would imagine they would because it's a good food source. So I have traveled. I've traveled extensively. Yes. To to like I think I've been to forty two states, several provinces, and all the way down to the Yucatan Peninsula. Okay. And I have ran across them in almost all areas I've ever traveled. A lot of them up in Alaska, and up in Montana, here in Oregon, Northern California, Washington, and Idaho, and then. Um, I found a smaller breed down in the Yucatan Peninsula area. So what was the difference between the breeds? I mean, obviously, other than the size. Um, lighter uh, hair color down there. They, they're like uh, like the sloths, how they have the, the algae growing in their hair. Yes. They're a, lot, a lot of them are like that. 
and they were a heck of a lot smaller than the northern ones, hmm. like half the size. Oh, that would make them roughly, you know, human size, a little smaller, maybe. Yeah, yeah, they were not much bigger than me. Well, but I didn't have much. I didn't have much experience with them down there because I was only down there for a short time. I see. When I was looking for when I was looking for the pyramids, mm-hmm. which I did manage to find. Well, that sounds like an interesting story itself. Yeah, I was on a lot of adventures back when I was younger. So after living out there amongst Bigfoot, then uh, you say you returned to civilization, and and you've encountered yeah. these in several different areas. But uh, and I've had uh, two encounters this summer alone. I see. Well, well, let's talk about those. Now, the first one, I was up camping on the Sluts River again, and it was about one o'clock in the morning, and I was going out, took my crawdad traps up in the gorge, and I had my you know super bright spotlight with me, and I heard stuff across the river. Yes. And I knew I knew the grass was you know quite tall, and I saw the eyes start popping out, one set after another after another. Higher than the grass was tall, and the grass was about eight feet. Okay. The eyes, the eyes were blood red, all of them, and there was about two dozen of them, standing side by side, you know, about five feet between them, lining the riverbank opposite of me, just standing there, kind of growling and grunting, not like a dog or a wolf or a coyote or an elk, but just standing there, like you were displeased with my being there. So now, how did these differ from your uh, the ones you encountered first? Um, I've had good encounters and bad encounters. These ones, I would say it was, uh, they were displeased with me being there, but they weren't going to hurt me. Okay. They just didn't want me there, and they were letting me know. Yeah. Well, see, now that was going to be my next question, too, because a lot of people, there's, there's varying, uh, a variation, I should say, on reports. Some people encounter creatures like that, and they say that they're, you know, Nonviolent, and then others encounter them and say that they're very aggressive. Predominantly, I had one. I had one very aggressive encounter because okay. that involved a friend of mine and a shotgun, and we thought it was a bear when he shot it first. Okay, until until it stood up and started running up the mudslide at us. Yes, and he proceeded to unload his shotgun at that animal, and I could see it taking the hits and parts of you know. Fur flying and flesh, and it kept running up the hill. And he reloaded his shotgun, and while he's doing that, I'm running for our truck. And he he kept shooting, and he's running, shooting, and yeah, it kept coming at us. And I jumped in the truck and I jackknifed the trailer. I was backing up so fast while he was even trying to catch up to me. Yeah, that was not a good experience. Well, I would say no. I've not been back to that area since. So it sounds to me as though they have different personalities and behavior patterns depending upon which part of that area you go into. Is that a well, fair I think assessment? That one, I think that one was just a matter of my friend shot at it, and it got mad. Well, and my friend kept shooting. Well, that, that's I mean, totally understandable. But once he'd made the first mistake, he was probably in fear for his life that if he didn't do something else, that you know he was going to be attacked. Yeah. Yes. So he just kept shooting, and that was actually not very far from the area where I made friends with them. I see. About 15, about 15 miles difference. So which was 15 miles in the woods. I mean, to a creature that lives in the woods really isn't much. Yeah, but they still communicate out there. I mean, you can hear them communicating from canyon to canyon by beating on the trees, and yes. they leave their markings. 
and they they leave marks in the individual little side tributaries of creeks where they have their salmon fishing spots or their trout fishing spots that individuals have claimed for themselves. That you know, another individual comes into it and they'll get mad that that guy came in or that girl came in. Right. You know. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah that would uh, imply a certain degree of territorialism. Yeah, almost like property ownership of the woods, I should say. And you talk about marks and things of that nature. Is there anything that you can share with people so they would know what to look for? Um, a lot of them look like either elk rubbings or bear scratching. Okay. Where you'll see the, the bark rubbed off a tree, but you'll notice that the branches up above that are all broken off, about 10 to 15 feet off the ground. The branches are snapped off, and quite often the tops of the trees are just snapped, like they're twigs. I see, and that's typically not something and, a bear does. No, and you'll find like a patch, like say 100 feet in diameter where all of the trees are, the tops are all snapped off, but there's nothing outside of that area. Huh. And that's them, that's some claiming that's their spot. So why do you think that you were able to interact with these creatures when a lot of people go actively looking for them can't find any sign of them, really? I didn't actually look for them in... I think it was me being interacted with the other animals of the woods and probably might have been the salmon um, hatchery that I had built out there to start raising, you know, helping the salmon population increase and yes. the gardens that I'd planted and the orchards that I planted and the food stocks that I had. I'm pretty sure that they also liked uh, my cannabis garden that I was growing because they were uh, quite into eating that. Wow. And yeah, they, they like that quite a bit. <laughs> yes. And um, some of the other things that I was doing out there that I wasn't like the average person to so, them. So I, I guess it, it would be something like after you were there a while, you were no longer an intruder. So they didn't feel like they had to hide from you. Yeah, I was no longer a threat of any way. And they kind of figured I wasn't going anywhere. And they liked the stuff that I had. Mm. I. At one point, you know, they I had a dead battery in my car, and they turned my car around for me without me doing anything to ask them or, you know, anything. My car, I could see the drag marks from the tires where the car was just spun in place. Yes. Yeah. And I was able to get, you know, my car moved out of, out of there and running because it was an old, you know, manual transmission, and I was able to get it. You know, I was able to get uh, a compression started and get out of there. And without them, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Well, that, yeah, that seems like a, a definitely a benefit to having, uh, I could say, friends that uh, are able to do that. And at one point, there was one of them that was trapped underneath of, uh, a bunch of debris from a mudslide. Okay. And using my picks and shovels that I had, we were able to dig him out and get him to safety. Well, see, now that, that would definitely engender a lot of uh, goodwill there. Yeah, he was about five years old. Mm -hmm. So he was not big and he was not, you know, he was about half my size and not as strong as me, though. Well, I mean, you know, a creature that size, even young, is going to be strong. Definitely. They were definitely very strong. But at birth, they look almost human. Almost no hair and they look like almost a Neanderthal, I should say. I'm with so just a big brow ridge and uh, dark colored skin, uh, slightly oversized nose, um, bigger sinuses, but almost no hair. So they almost look human. 
But that's interesting because very few people report ever seeing a juvenile, much less anything that would qualify as a, a toddler or a newborn. So that, well, like yeah. I said, I helped birth one that was breech birth. So now I'm curious, have you shared this information with any other professional researchers? No, I have not. I have not because I did not think anybody would believe me. And if they did, I was afraid they would hunt them down. Well, see, that's a couple of concerns there. Anytime someone experiences anything that's out of the ordinary, there, there's always the potential that they'll be accused of being a liar or delusional, something like that. And on the other side uh, of that is the fact that if you uh, had a positive experience with something like that, you wouldn't want it to be hurt. Yeah, I don't want them hurt. I don't want anybody finding them. Right. Humans don't really have a very good track record of caring for wildlife in the planet, put it that way. No, they don't. But my ancestors, dating back thousands of years here in this country, mm. there are stories of them and, you know, stories of good that they've done. Mm-hmm. So now uh, you, know, I, you mentioned your ancestry. Or, or do you, are you Native American? Partially, yes. Okay. That's one of the reasons. Yeah. yeah I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. But I am mostly of European descent, but, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, there's more stories of, you know, the of these creatures from my native side. Yes. And definitely on my son, with him being a local native here to Oregon, there's a lot of stories from his tribe. I see. So, uh, but him, did, did him he, coming up on the age of five, he was almost old enough that I'm going to start taking him deeping up into the woods that hopefully he will meet them. That would be uh, nice if you could perpetuate some sort of tradition. And I can well, see- at this point. At this point, he's five years old, and he can tell you turn by turn directions to your, from my house to the hot springs four hours away. So hopefully he will be able to um, follow my experience and meet my friends. Like I said, that would be a good experience for both him and you, maintain some sort of continuity. Yes. So now, other than these experiences that you, you've already shared with us, have you had any more interaction with uh, with these creatures or different creatures? Um, I met them, ran into them up on Kodiak Island when I lived up there, mm-hmm. up in Alaska. And they were even on, on there's even some on Sandpoint up on that desolate little piece of uh, rock. Well, you know, and go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, what were you saying there? I was just going to say, as as the world becomes more and more connected, we we start to hear stories and and realize that uh, people have reported on these creatures for hundreds of years in diverse places in the world. Yeah. Well, I've also lived up in uh, just north of Yellowstone Park and up by Glacier National Park. And um, I've been down in California quite extensively. And I've been up into Maine and Minnesota and Michigan. And I've ran across them in all those areas. So why do you think most people don't see anything like this when they go camping or anything of that nature? Because they don't pay attention to what's around them. Okay. You mind to qualify that a little bit? Spend a minute and look around you and see, and that stump might not be a stump. You know, that bird, that bird that's looking at something, maybe it's not a dead animal. Maybe it's something looking at a dead animal. You know, if there's a cougar up in a tree, that cougar might be hiding from something that might be watching you also. You know, there might be a reason why the area says wolves have been seen, but you don't see a wolf there because something is behind you protecting you, and you don't even realize it because 
you're too busy on your smartphone. I see. You know? And and you know there's there's a precedent for that because we typically don't see anything that isn't right under our nose. It, it takes work. We don't have uh, the advantage of, of keen senses, for instance. And I've made this analogy before compared to the garden variety field mouse. Human beings are, are blind and stupid and can't smell anything. Yeah. We, but we, I've walked up. I've been in the woods and I've been in the woods and I've walked up and picked up a spotted owl. Okay. And walked around walked around with it, petting it, fed it grapes, um, fed it some bugs, and it was basically a pet of mine for like six hours. Free to go at any moment. Yes. But it enjoyed, it enjoyed just riding on my shoulder, eating what I was eating. I've had experiences like that. You know, and if people can experience something like that. They can go a little deeper and experience something more and be there when that waterfall freezes and there's a creature there next to you that you don't often see or often hear about that is wants to experience that same experience with you. So basically what you're saying is that we should uh, pay more attention to what's going on around us. Yes, because you never know. Like just the other night on the way home from my friend's house at one o'clock in the morning, I saw what I can only describe as a, you know, as a Bigfoot walking down my street. And he walked about 50 feet up the street, across the street. And then when he saw me, he dropped on all fours and took off faster than a greyhound dog towards the end of my street, which is a drop-off canyon of about 350 to, or so feet, or about 280 feet, I mean. And it just drops that 280 feet in about 350 feet. And, yeah, he just disappeared down there. So, yeah, you never know what you might see. That was just a few nights ago. So is there is there anything when people go out into the woods uh, looking for things like this, anything they should do to protect themselves? No, I would um, say don't protect yourself because if you do, you're going to create a problem. I generally don't carry a gun unless I think there won't be one around because carrying a gun will only attract bad attention. I see. You know, if you want to carry a gun, um, be in bear territory where there's not been sightings of Bigfoot. Okay. Or be in cougar territory where there's not been sightings of Bigfoot. Because if you're in an area where there have been sightings of them, they will protect you from the other animals. They're not against us. So so what you're saying is that you're, you're in more danger from things like uh, a mountain lion or a bear or a wolf, wild wolf, than you are from yeah. a, a, a Bigfoot. Any day, every day. So You're now, more in danger from a coyote. So now spending that much time out in the woods, essentially, I mean, it, I'm getting the impression that you've spent most of your life outdoors. You, you've always spent time out going and doing things. So I first uh, started spending time deep in the woods when I was about five because my grandma lived 11 miles up in the woods on the gravel road. Yes. And her back her backyard was nothing but forest. I see. For for ten miles, I mean, you could see Mount Hood from from the top of the hill, and there was logging cabins from the eighteen hundreds and old steam powered equipment that had been abandoned, and there was a family living there, and I mean a family of hairy people. So, in all that time out in the woods, have you encountered anything out of the ordinary besides a Bigfoot? Yes. Okay, would you mind to elaborate on that a little bit? My best encounter was actually in the town of Solis, and I had my mom witness it with me. And somewhere I actually have a picture of it, 
And I called her out saying, Mom, Mom, you need to come look at this to make sure that I'm not just hallucinating and this is real. Okay. And it was what I can only describe as the visitors um, hovering above the town. And they just kind of hovered back and forth, you know, in every all three dimensions, forward, backwards, sideways, up and down. And then um, just after we got the camera, I had taken one picture and... I can actually snap a picture as they were taking off and leaving. And in that one picture, there's five swirls and a straight jet line of them leaving the atmosphere in one single frame of a 35 millimeter camera. So now, by referring to them as visitors and uh, the way you're describing that, I'm, I'm only assuming that uh, you're speaking about aliens, extraterrestrials. Something that is not human that was uh, in a flying machine. Okay. Yeah, and like I said, in one frame of 35 35 millimeter camera, there's five swirls and a straight jet line of them leaving the atmosphere. Now, have you shared that picture anywhere on social media? No. Okay. Because the reason I asked you, listeners might want to see that. Now, most of my photos have been kept secret. Okay. So have you encountered them more than the one time? I saw them uh, two nights after that, again with my mom, in about the same place, and there was three of them that second time and there's also a spot outside of the town i grew up in where the locals they call it the alien landing pad all right where it's a spot in the woods about uh, 50 meters across where it's bare rock well i shouldn't say bare rock it is rock with moss on it and no tree will grow on it i see people people planted stuff and it dies and yeah it's nothing will grow but moss and lights have been seen there all the time of various colors and arrangements and they'll land and then take off and then people will see these lights going over the local reservoirs and siphoning water from them. That's interesting because these uh, things of this nature are generally seen around things like power plants, waterways and things of that nature. So, Well, we have a lot of uh, small reservoirs around where I live at. So now have you witnessed any of this draining water or is it just that they've been sighted yeah, and then it's been reported? I have witnessed it myself, and I have had friends um, report it to me. Well, if you don't mind, describe that to us. How that? How did that happen? What was the mechanics of it? How did they, they hover a few hundred yards above the reservoir, and then you'll hear a humming noise, and you'll see what looks like a cyclone. Okay. And basically, basically, you'll see the water. It'll like boil down for a few hundred yards across with like a um, funnel coming up out of the center of it leading straight up to the vehicle. I see. Yeah. And how long does that usually take? I mean, I'm trying to get my a frame of reference here how much actual water was displaced. Depends on the size of the vehicle. That should take up to about 10 minutes. Well, that would be a lot of water. Um, I have no idea what how much water you can suck through air. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it would be different to completely understand the mechanics. I would think given 10 minutes, yeah. advanced technology, they could probably siphon quite a bit of water. Several thousand gallons. I mean, my dad being a former firefighter, I, I've watched those pumps, and they can do, you know, a few thousand gallons a minute. So I'm guessing 20 or 30,000 gallons after 10 minutes. And that sounds like a large number, but based on something the size of a reservoir, it really isn't. Yeah, a reservoir is 100 million gallons. They don't notice it. Right. Yeah. 
and the reservoirs around here are all deep in the woods and at night most of them are closed so you don't see that kind of thing unless you're camped there when you're not supposed to be i see yeah so now they have and to, i have there been I've camped all over the place, so. okay well i, I was going to say have there been any speculation on why they're doing that i have no idea other than they're thirsty well, there seems to be a lot of a lot of water for being thirsty. They're growing crops hydroponically. Um, I have no idea. Maybe they're splitting the, the elements to make fuel. That's you know, so draining the oxygen and hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Because I've seen them out over uh, Lake Erie siphoning water there in massive amounts of ships at once. Where I know back during World War II, the the Canadians were siphoning water. To make or to get the heavy water for the deuterium or whatever for making the nuclear weapons. Okay. So it's possible they're siphoning for heavy water to make um, fuel for nuclear power. Well, it's a possibility. So, uh, other than the lights of the reservoirs and things like that, have you had any more interaction with these visitors? Um, the visitors, not really. I when I see them, I try to go the other way or go inside or just avoid them. Because they scare me. Well, you know, on that subject, I, I was I was going to point out that you seem to be totally unfazed and, in fact, uh, attracted to your sightings and your interaction with Bigfoot, but it doesn't seem that you have the same attitude toward these visitors. No, I do not. So uh, are you I, under the impression that they're doing something nefarious there? Yes, I am. I believe that my uh, fiancé was once taken by them and was surgically... Um, tested. I see. Now, did she share this with you, or is yeah, it- she even has a scar that no doctor can explain, but it is a surgical scar, better than any doctor that has ever looked at it can do. That's interesting. On her back. But now you have not had a personal experience like this, Greg. Not that I can remember, but I have um, spots that are unexplainable by doctors that um, are not cancer, but they're not of human origin. I see. So are are you thinking that uh, possibly this could have happened to you too and you just have no memory of it? I've seen some strange things and I don't remember what happened after those things. I see. So uh, could you think maybe that would account for the fact that you have this, this high degree of apprehension whenever you spot something like this? Yes. And and that would that would seem to be perfectly logical given the circumstances. A subconscious fear? Yeah, I think so. So, now, uh, have you had any experiences with anything else that you would like to share? I am, as a commercial fisherman, I have pulled up monsters that um, cannot be explained. Now, now when you, you use the term monster, a lot of people bandy that about. Are you just using it to describe something that's an unknown species, or is it something that's actually unnatural? Um, both. Okay. I have pulled up. From 78 miles offshore and roughly, I think, um, about a mile and a half deep, okay. give or take, um, we pulled up what can be described as, or I can only describe as the biggest um, squid I've ever seen. It had eyes that were roughly three feet in diameter, and its lung tentacles went from the back of the boat all the way around the front of the wheelhouse and back to the back of the boat again. And then wrapped around the bell of the body, which was about six feet tall and about 20 feet long, and went to the front of the body from, you know, all the way around the boat and to the front of the body again. 
you know. So it sounds like so, something that could do serious damage to a ship if not, in fact, sink the ship. Yes. And then up in uh, the archipelago of Southeast Alaska, we experienced something that almost sank a 135-foot boat. See that boat. And it was shaking... It was shaking the boat to the point where the rails up on the deck were hitting the water. It was like pulling the boat almost over. So, yeah, I mean, you say like pulling the boat over. Was it attached with like tentacles or, or, or what? I, we, we couldn't see because we had no lights on. I see. The only lights, the only lights we had on were pointing down the threshold mm-hmm. because we were pumping 528,000 pounds of salmon overboard. Okay. that had gone rotten. And whatever it was didn't like us doing it. Do you think maybe it, and, it had even been attracted by that? Yes, by the smell. Mm-hmm. And whatever it was, it was able to dent um, half-inch thick solid steel plating. That's extreme. And bend the ribs of the boat to almost you know an inch out of place. And the ribs on that boat were built by the United States Navy for World War II. I see. So and that boat, the boat had taken torpedo impacts without that much damage. That would have been extreme. Yeah, extreme amount of force required to do that. Did you? Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, had no sighting of what was causing this then? All we could see was a lot of splashes in the water and water coming up over the rails, the boat being pulled to about 45 degrees to each side or more. And we were an anchor, so we weren't moving and we were hanging out, so there wasn't a storm. Okay. It was, it was the end of summer, there was no storms or anything. Whatever it was, was just beating the crap out of us in the boat. What sounds positively horrifying, to be honest about it. It scared me. And I've seen hurricanes out there without navigational systems and only working off a compass. So I've seen some bad stuff. Right. But but this was not anything like a weather phenomenon or anything like that. No. It, it was absolutely not. Clear skies, perfect calm seas. And if you know anything about the archipelago of Southeast Alaska, it's just islands after islands, and there's no waves back in there. So, and there's no way this could have been uh, caused by another vessel, for instance. No, there was nothing else around. Yeah, nothing on radar for about 25 miles. So it it, it sounds like it, it, it's basically a mystery that can't be solved. But it is a secret that I cannot de- describe or explain. So what are some of the other experiences you've had? Well, I believe that I have seen a mermaid out there once. Okay. Well, you care to explain that? Uh, we'd been tuna fishing for I don't know how many weeks. Yes. And we were about, we were probably 2,000 miles from dry land in any direction. Between Honolulu, Anchorage, Newport, and Tokyo. Okay. You know, basically in the very middle of the North Pacific. I see. And we had just filled the boat. And the fog is sitting, and the ocean covered in foam. And then I was on the wheel watch, everyone else was sleeping, and I heard singing. Not of any language I ever heard, but just a beautiful singing. And then I saw them out there with, um, I don't know what they are, we call them black and whites. I think they're some type of porpoise. Okay. They gather about a thousand sometimes, and they read the, the wake off the bow, you know, jumping off the waves that comes off the bow of the boat when you're moving. Yes. And they're joining the thousands, and these creatures were with them, riding on them, singing as they were jumping along the front of the boat. Well, now, when you use the term mermaid, people will have a basic concept of what they think this is, but if you don't mind, describe them. They're not quite human-looking, but they were not fish. They had arms. 
Okay. They had hair. They had faces, but they not human faces. Kind of a short beak. You could definitely tell that it was a mouth, but it was also like a short extension an inch or two out that would be described as a beak, I guess. Okay. And, and but they were they had um they had gills that were you know, gill slits down on the bottom of their necks. Okay. That I could tell. And their hands were webbed and their legs were webbed for about the distance down to their knees. I see. And webbed feet. So, so they weren't and, really like the typical explanation. Like the bottom half wasn't just a fin with flippers and yeah. things like that. It was, it was half a fin down to their knees, and then their feet were webbed and kind of looked like frog feet. Okay. And they were kind of an off-tone uh, golden blue. I see. Yeah. So now, and their eyes, their eyes were like a, of a golden color and reflective of everything. It's, it's an interesting description, but they were definitely humanoid. You'd say, yeah, yes. And you mentioned the singing. I mean, was it words that you could recognize, or it just seemed to be a melody? No, just a melody of beautiful tones. I see. I think a good way to describe it would be like, uh, have you ever seen that movie, The Shawshank Redemption, the way that Red describes the way that the music plays when Andy is playing uh, the opera or whatever? Yeah. How is words so beautiful that, or music so beautiful that word, words can't describe it? I see. It's kind of like that. Kind of like that. Okay. Just something that, that kind of uh, impacts you on a, on a basic level beyond language. On, on a, deep, a deep emotional um, sense, I should say, where you can just feel the music and you can you can't understand it, but you can you get it. Okay, and you know, how it's just peace. So that that kind of plays into the next question I was going to ask. It gave you a feeling of peace. I was going to ask you if at any point they threatened your vessel or so, no, so absolutely so, not. So, so they were just riding along. With, they were just riding along with the, the porpoises and singing to us. Well, singing to me because everyone else was asleep. I see. But I think, I think one of the other guys had a similar experience later on that day with him, but I was asleep at that point. But he can describe the same thing to me. So now, when this happened, how far from shore were you? Um, the closest port was roughly 1,800 miles. So, so you were in the deep ocean then? The middle of the North Pacific. Yes. Like if you if you make a straight line from Honolulu to Anchorage, and Tokyo to Newport, Oregon, yes, um, right where right where those two lines cross, we were about right there. I see. So I mean, really, you were were beyond any it's, kind of. Uh, we were further from dry land than astronauts on the space station. I see. So so kind of what I was getting at, kind of playing devil's advocate there. Uh, you were far enough out to where it couldn't have been another vessel. It couldn't have been somebody coming from the shore or anything like that. Absolutely, absolutely not. And if there were another no. vessel, you would know it for what it was. Yeah, we had um, different radar systems, and we have what's called AIS, which is satellite system that tells you any vessel, and there's nobody within 100 miles of us. So, And it was the water's miles deep there. Yeah, so anyway, and, and really, honestly, people... I don't think actually know how deep it is. Um, there's a spot out there where, not far from where we were, where it's about six miles deep. Yes. Yeah. So that's uh, three times deeper than where the Titanic sink. Yes. So so that that's that's a vast amount of distance and in, in that much space. 
a yes. lot of a lot of things can be there and you never see them. Yeah, there was nothing there on radar. So, have you had other experiences that you would care to share? I have some, but I can't really think of them in detail right now. I see. Well, perhaps we can have you back on at a future date and talk about some more of this stuff. Yeah. So, and maybe maybe between now and then, um, I might even have some more experiences. Well, that's a, a definite possibility. If you're still out in in the wild parts of the world, it, it's difficult to say what you might encounter. Well, I'm planning a trip deep into the Cascades here this weekend. I see. Yeah. So, who knows where I'll find. And uh, we look forward to talking to you about that. Okay. Yeah, I have uh, a few places I have to go explore because I heard rumors of an unknown hot spring that I want to go find. I see. I mean, is it yeah. just an unknown hot spring, or is it something that's legendary, or, or what? Well, I have a friend. Um, he goes by the name of a cuckoo. Okay. I found him first around the hot springs down outside of Roseburg, Oregon. And, yeah, he's been in contact with me, and he's found a few other hot springs that nobody else has, I guess, found. And he's made friends with people out there that are not human. What's that sense? And he's one of them. And he's wanting me to go down and experience with him. Well, we'd uh, look forward to talking to you about any new experiences that you might have. But, well, hopefully uh, I can get him uh, on with you guys, too. Well, see, now that would be good. Of course, share the information, have him reach out, listen to the podcast so that uh, he'll know what he's getting into. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so I guess for the moment, I want to thank you for, for being on the podcast and sharing your experience with our listeners. And we will look forward to talking to you again in the future. Now, in the meantime, you, you seem to be, you know, a relatively private person. But do you have any, any sort of social media where people can reach out to you and, and maybe ask you I'm questions? On, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Okay. So they, they just look for you on Facebook or Instagram? Yeah. There's a great them. Okay. Well, then uh, we'll point people that direction. And uh, okay. for the moment, as I said, thank you for being on the podcast and uh, yeah. you enjoy the rest of your day. This is Charles Romans. And on behalf of myself and our guests, thank you for joining us on this walk through the shadows of legend. If you like what you heard, please follow us and visit our website at shadowsoflegend.com and support our Patreon page to help keep the content flowing. And if you would like to be a guest and share your own brush with a stranger paranormal, don't hesitate to email us and include a contact number. The strange and surreal, the normal and the paranormal are all aspects of the world in which we live. As you reflect upon the stories we have shared, keep in mind that the people sharing these stories are actual, real people just like us. Were the stories shared compelling enough to be given credibility, or should they be relegated to the deeper part of the shadows? But when determining this, it might be a good idea to keep an open mind, because when we look around, we might discover that our own world is less brightly lit than we once thought. Until next time, I'll be waiting for you in the shadows of legend.